0: Opinions expressed are those of the show host, not WSTU or
1: Treasure. Coast.
0: Opinions expressed are those of the show hosts, not WSTU or Treasure Coast broadcasters. Any reproduction or reuse of this program without the written consent of WSTU is strictly prohibited. Welcome to Paradox. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 772 220 wstu And now your hosts for Paradox, Dr. Ira Perlstein and
1: Dr. Leanne Talton.
0: Good morning, Leanne.
1: Good morning, Dr. Ira.
0: We were just in the studio.
1: I know. It seems like two days ago.
0: We were. This is on this is not a live show. No way. Yeah, so you can't call in today.
1: Aww. I know
0: you guys out there in the audience are very disappointed because we get so many phone calls. You
1: mean Frank gets to take a vacation? Frank's
0: Frank's <laughs> Frank's headed to D.C. Awesome. Frank, Frank's our chief engineer for the show. Where are you headed, Frank? Yep, going to uh, see the Capitol and see what's going on up there. Never been. Oh, it's beautiful yeah. this time yeah. of the year. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Get out of Stewart where it's 90 plus degrees <laughs> yeah. always. And right. raining
1: today. Yeah,
0: And you told me there might be a big storm on the way. That's what we're told. Yes. So, uh, yeah, keep an eye out for that. So, well, we'll know about mm-hmm. it by the time this show goes live. Yeah. By the time this show is broadcast, which is next Thursday, because we're recording on Saturday, we'll know something more about that. Exactly. So just remember, guys, you can't call into that show. But we have a very special guest today on Paradox.
1: Yes, we have Dr. Julia Nemiroff. Good morning,
2: Julia. Well, hi. Thank you so much, Leanne. Uh, Dr. Ira and Dr. Leanne, sorry. Um, it's such a pleasure to be here. And um, it, honestly, I've shared so many patients with both of you. And you guys provide such an incredible service to your Shameless
1: community.
0: <laughs> well, well, you know we what we think. The eyes have it. Well, thank you, yes.
1: It's all about the eyes. What did right. you do last night? Oh, let's see. Last night, I went out with dear friends to Kyle G's. How was it? It was amazing, as usual. The view is awesome. The food was great. No kids. Another shame, shameless plug. Shameless plug. Yeah, it doesn't <laughs> no. get any better than that.
2: Yeah.
0: What about you? Well, me, speaking of shameless plugs, yeah, I you know, there are certain places I feel really comfortable going. One of those places is the Gafford in downtown Stewart. It, it has to be one of my favorite places in the world. I have a few favorite places. One is Casa Marata on Isla Marata. I vacation there frequently. Right. But I am a fixture at the Gafford. I'm, I'm like the norm of cheers. I have my own stool there and everything. <laughs> it is so fun. And the food is so good. And it's such a friendly environment. But my wife just had a hip replacement. Yeah, she's doing great. And she wanted to get out last night. And she wanted to venture out somewhere new. So we tried this Cypress on Ocean over on 2875 Ocean Boulevard. Mm -hmm. It was really good. And we met the chef, chef owner, Robert Statler. He used to be a chef on a yacht in Europe. So he brings a lot of that to his plates. And it's a lot of small plates. So... I felt like I was cheating on the Gafford, but but, but I'm going to be back at the Gafford hopefully next week. And it's nice to know that Stuart now has a lot of good places to eat. And like we've discussed before, Leanne and Dr. Julia, I'm kind of a foodie.
1: You are kind of a food. You're just kind of fancy in general.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm fancy pants, right? Right, right, <laughs> right. right.
1: I'm <laughs> right. like schlepping kids and slinging diapers, and you're over there.
0: Been there, done fine that. Fine dining. Been there, done that. <laughs> so these places that we eat at, the preparation and the experience is so professional that I needed something to start the show with today, and I wanted to segue into... How professional people, they don't always feel professional, professional know, yeah. about what they do. They
1: don't always feel confident. Right.
0: Did you know that many high achievers share a dirty little secret?
1: Which is?
0: Deep down, they feel like complete frauds. Their accomplishments are the result of serendipitous luck. In fact, Albert Einstein felt that way. Oh. Maya Angelou felt that way. And even after she had won like 12 literary awards, she felt like she was non-deserving. There's a psychological phenomenon that explains that.
1: And it's called?
0: Imposter syndrome.
1: Uh-huh. We talk about this all the time in our female networking organizations. That's true. We do. The problem with um, women in general
2: is that, well, Maybe that's not a problem. We do think we're generally better at everything. <laughs> for sure, in the kitchen, right? Well, in the kitchen, at home, <laughs> you know. Oh, um,
0: the best chefs in the world are men.
2: Oh, man. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know. We'll have... well. All right. But without getting, you know, too competitive, um, it's true. And I think that as women, we're often mistaken for nurses or other people in the hospital. And as we're as we're going through our training, I feel like we constantly have to keep proving ourselves. We have to keep saying, no, 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 I'm the doctor. You have to listen to me. And especially if you happen like Dr. Talton to look a little young.
1: Oh, it s- says you. <laughs> <laughs> for all of you listening, Julia is beautiful and might look like your 16 year old daughter. No,
0: I, I don't have that problem. <laughs> notice no one's looking my way here. in the I studio. already told
1: you, I already have a perfect face for radio.
0: I did. <laughs> <laughs> but but imposter syndrome actually reflects a belief that you're an inadequate and an incompetent failure, despite evidence that indicates you're skilled and quite successful.
1: So this is like that moment where, and it's interesting because I think about this a lot. I I'm, I'm now in solo practice. Actually, Julia is as well. And I never really feel this when I'm making medical decisions. I do not feel like this in the moment talking to patients. I do. Ne- I never feel this when I'm giving advice, but there's times throughout the day where it catches me off guard that it's this subtle little feeling like, are they going to figure out that I don't know what I'm doing? You
0: feel like the <laughs> stewardess that now has to fly the jumbo jet and land it?
1: Well, I mean- Maybe, but I, I'm kind of flying the jet, right? Like I'm flying solo on my own, so I I know I can do it. I'm there doing it, but these little insecurities sneak in and and it catches you off guard. Like I said, because it's not always when you're expecting it. So we read an article about this, and uh, we did, we did. It's called Smart, Sane, and Successful by Melody Wielding, and there she actually breaks it down into a couple of different types of five types, Im- I believe, of impostor. So. Tell us about it.
0: Well, the first type of imposter is the perfectionist. And perfectionism and imposter syndrome kind of go hand in hand. Think about it for a second. Perfectionists set excessively high goals for themselves. And when they fail to reach that goal, they experience major self-doubt and they worry about, do they measure up? Of course, you could always set your goals really low, and then you don't have that problem. But professionals don't usually do that.
1: Uh, The second type is the superwoman or Superman. And these are the people that are convinced that they're phonies among their real deal colleagues. So they push themselves to work harder and harder to measure up. I think that of, of the five that we're talking about, that's definitely the young physician in practice well
0: not necessarily i i I think it applies to me as well
1: yeah you got that one too
0: yeah i've got the superman syndrome i don't have the cape (laughs) but but this is this is why this is why it applies to me because i stay later at the office and when i was in a large group i stayed later than the rest of my team even past the point that i completed the necessary day's work i get stressed out when i'm not working and I find downtime on the weekends completely wasteful. Mm-hmm. I was up at six o'clock this morning and at the gym prepared for this show. I've been to the office. I admitted somebody to the ho- hospital in upstate New York. Mm-hmm. And I talked to a lady on a European cruise. And I did all that before nine o'clock this morning. Mm-hmm. And that's that's kind of scary, right? Yeah. And somehow, unlike you who, great mom, beekeeper, producing her own honey, artist, stained glass maker, truly the craft woman of the century, I've seemingly left my hobbies and passions fall to the wayside a little bit. And perhaps I've sacrificed that for work. So sometimes I feel that I haven't truly earned my title, Although I have like 20 something diplomas on my wall and I've been reboarded like six, seven times in my specialty. But imposter worker holics like myself are actually somewhat addicted to the validation that comes from working not to the work itself.
1: And I've heard that before from some of my physician colleagues who have retired that they find that being retired and not, you know, regularly being called doctor and validated for all the work they put into their profession that there's something missing without that.
0: But of course, coming home in the evening brings me back to reality. Honey, the trash needs to be taken <laughs> out to the end of in the, the same street. Old guy but, to Amy. but wait, I just saved this guy's life. Yeah. Yeah, and don't forget the <laughs> recycling bin on your way out.
1: Right. So the third type is the natural genius, and these people feel that they need to be a natural genius. So if they put too much work into their work, they they feel like a phony because it should have come naturally to them.
0: Do you have that problem, the natural genius?
1: I don't know. I mean, I, I think You're I'm too just, smart. Thank you. As as are you both, but I think that um, I think I'm too busy focusing on everybody else asking me questions to think about that.
0: The fourth type, of course, is the soloist. These are sufferers who feel that asking for help reveals their phoniness. So they go through it alone. It's okay to ask for help. These people get all bent out of shape asking for help because it makes them feel like they're a failure or a phony.
1: Yeah. And then the fifth one she mentions is the expert. And these are the people that believe they will never know enough, they will never be enough, and they fear being exposed or looking experienced or unknowledgeable.
0: Yeah. you know, We could have brought that up on the show where we talked about the four levels of knowledge.
1: Yeah. So sometimes we feel like imposters. I think you're I think you're more at risk for it early in your career, although you told us that you still experience that. And I think that um, starting your own practice and being out on your own, you definitely are at risk for it too. And so I've I've been there for about a year and Julia here just recently started her new practice, Retina and Eye Clinic of Palm Beach Gardens. How is that going? Oh, it's
2: been incredible. Well, it's actually really interesting that you bring that up because You know, we have these networks of of other physicians and other people who support us. And I think without that, it's really difficult to go through this especially when you're in solar practice, which I have been for exactly one month.
1: So I'm going to take this minute to let all of you listeners know that Julia is very special to me. So not only is she my dear friend, esteemed colleague, fabulous ophthalmologist, but she is also the glue that holds the young female physicians of Martin County together because you started the group, Stuart PMG. Can you tell us what that is? That's right. It's Stuart Physician Mommy
2: Group. So um, I have to tell you that, Without this group, without Leanne's support, without the support of these other women of all ages, um, who are all pretty much lived in Marden County and who take care of most of Marden County's population, mm-hmm. I would never have thought or gotten the courage together to start a practice. Um, we we've supported each other socially, we support each other with medical dilemmas if um if I need a second opinion I have about 6 at my fingertips usually
1: so this is a facebook group and so we have a mother group a physician moms group which is 70,000 plus members uh you know of female physicians that are all you know together in this facebook group and then there's little there's Probably thousands of offshoots. Of, would you be surprised to know I'm in physician mom crafter group? Yeah. No, we not. Yeah, I'm in that one. I, I posted just today. Okay. But, well, but you're well, not
0: in a physician mom beaker group.
1: Beaks are really special. I, there probably is one, but <laughs> I haven't. I, I could start it. That's me. For what those
0: you- of you out there who don't know, beaks are the term they use for beekeepers.
1: Right. You gotta, tune, oh. you, gotta you gotta rewind, I go back to the first that. episode. Oh, yeah. Okay. So anyway, so Julia was brand new to the area and just the person that she is is a uniter of people, a social person who you know loves to get together and share family and experiences. And so she brand new to the area put together Stuart PMG, started adding members, and now we meet what monthly? We've met monthly for two years, and I myself have never missed a oh. meetup. Oh. <laughs> There you go. So I'm um, proud of her.
0: Oh, I, I'm you. proud of you too. that That sounds so special. So, what do you guys talk about during this group?
1: You know, we
2: talk about everything. I think um, I think there's something there's something to be said for,
1: um, well, there's a lot of challenges in being a female physician. Would you agree? I would definitely agree. I've never not been a female physician, (laughs) but I can just observe that the challenges I think that females have in general, and then certainly being young professionals. Yes, we do bond over those experiences and get support. But, you know, I think that bigger than being the same, right? So bigger than just being female physicians struggling or celebrating each other, not struggling, I think it's important for physicians in general to be more social. And since... A lot of physicians have now transitioned into being either inpatient or outpatient. We don't bond as much. We don't see each other as much. And oh, so yeah. I think that f- patients um, patients benefit from their physicians knowing each other personally. Ira, would you not agree with that? Because pretty much everybody on this show is a personal friend of yours, right? Oh,
0: absolutely. I agree with that. I want to ask you one question. though. Okay. When I was in training... About ten percent of physicians were females, and it seems now it's more like sixty forty. about forty percent of physicians are female, maybe even closer to fifty percent in some areas of the country
1: practicing or getting admitted to medical school because those statistics, there are more female admissions to medical school than male. So the, the it, it is becoming well, I'm assuming uh, that, that they all people. graduate, yeah. True, but practicing physicians, there's still probably some holdover of more males of generations before.
0: But Leanne and and Julia, do you see certain specialties that female physicians tend to go into over males because they're still balancing that work-home-life situation?
2: You know, it's interesting because I, you know... I'm sure it lifestyle went into my decision, you know, and I, I wanted to be a surgeon, but you know, childhood dream of neurosurgery definitely went out the window pretty quickly in medical school. But, um, you know, that said through medical school, wouldn't you say that, you know, people still, I know we have friends who are cardiologists. Yep. We have friends and you know what? We take call. I'm never Without my phone. I've never not gone in for an emergency. Actually, my daughter has gone in
1: with me. Yeah. And so, actually, I will say that that is exactly why these types of groups are crucial for women physicians being uh, represented equally across all specialties, is because a lot of what has prevented us from going into certain specialties is this misconception that work life balance is impossible because of the nature of your job. No, it's not. It's less possible when your job doesn't support what should be. Equal home requirements of both men and women. So that's exactly why these groups are critical for pushing agendas that make it possible for you to be all the things that we're required to be in life, which is doctor, uh, parent, spouse child of ailing parents you know our, our work life and home life should be balanced whether we're male or female so these groups are really important for making sure that we're adequately represented at that table
0: do you feel like a group like the physician moms group tends to alleviate your stress
2: oh there's no question about it um there's very few people i can turn to and say today i did surgery and then right afterwards, I had to take my daughter skating. And right <laughs> after that, I had to go in on call, you know, to see a patient. And my daughter came with me. And then, all right, you know, these are people who understand this, who went through this, who, you know, pumped in residency, who, you know, we all went through this together. And um, I really, I mean, I couldn't have done it without the support. I think it's been incredible.
1: Totally.
0: I'm, I'm impressed. Hey, do you want to talk about eyes for a little bit?
1: Mm, no problem.
0: Let's do it. <laughs> so, when I was in training, we spent about a week on eyes.
1: Yeah. Let me just take that. Let me just expound upon that for just one second. Okay. I mean, go ahead. That she is incredible to me because you're right. In family medicine training and in internship, most people spend about a week and what they do is totally foreign to the rest of us. It's like my worst case scenario would be somebody comes into the emergency department when I'm on that rotation or covering the ER and they have an eye complaint. And I'm like, no, I have to use uh, the no, slit lamp. Not no, no. Well,
0: <laughs> I actually, and, and this happened when I was studying for boards So you're keyed up on a little bit of ophthalmology, and we treat uh, some eye infections, and this patient came in with a red eye, and they thought they had a conjunctivitis, and asked me to call them in something over the phone. And this is why it's not a good idea to call medicines in over the phone. The patient comes to the office, and I look in their eye, and they had this starburst effect. You could actually see it. it looked like a starburst. So... I thought this patient had iritis. And at the time, the ophthalmologist I was using was downstairs in our building and sent the patient down. He goes, wow, that's unusual that a family doctor would pick up on an iritis. I go, yeah, I'm studying for my boards again. (laughs) So, But we spent about a week on the eyes. And, you know, they say that the eyes are the windows to the body. Some people even say they're the windows to the soul. And many systemic diseases – can be picked up with a good eye exam. For instance, Kaiser Fleischer rings and hypercalcemia, et cetera. So can you tell our listeners what systemic diseases that you've actually picked up during your practice?
2: Yeah, you're absolutely right. As much as eyes are windows to the soul, the eye exam is a great overview of your general health. I've been the first to diagnose strokes, diabetes, hypertension, multiple sclerosis, allergies, thyroid disease, Cushing, sleep apnea. It honestly goes on and on. Um, It's a really long list. And newer research using our technology, the technology that I have in my office, is even making it possible to diagnose Alzheimer's um, early. So people sometimes don't realize that the eye is actually the only part of the brain And the only blood vessels that doctors can actually look at and see the function with their own eyes.
1: Aha. And you're talking about the retina? I am. Oh, and are you a retina specialist?
2: Why, I am. Tell us about that. Well, um, so as a retina specialist and um, specifically retina. Now that's
1: special training, right?
2: Yes, that is a fellowship training after ophthalmology residency. So how many
0: years is that?
2: I think it was a total of like thirteen if you start counting, you know, <laughs> in the beginning, Wow. But, um, you know, as a retina specialist, um,
0: that's like being bar mitzfit in
2: eyes. that's right. I. Love- <laughs> what a great way
1: I've become a woman. <laughs> <laughs> so you so you did a fellowship in retina. I did. And um, how does that affect your practice? What do you do?
2: So I am specifically trained um, in diseases of the retina, which can be a lot of things. Um, Anything from retinal tears, holes, you know, when people come in with complaining of those flashes and floaters and things like that, diabetic retinopathy. Um, But, you know, I also treat macular degeneration. Who doesn't know somebody with macular degeneration? I think every single family in South Florida Mm-hmm. Has somebody with macular degeneration? Mm-hmm. I have it on both sides of my family. So, um, I treat macular degeneration a lot. Um, I also treat uveitis. So, I'm one of the few uveitis specialists in South Florida. Most people don't know what uveitis is. That's what you were mentioning,
1: iritis. Right. Most doctors don't know what well, I was
0: studying is. for my words at the time.
1: Great. Right.
2: You
0: get yeah.
1: really smart and then it fades away again. It fades away quickly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's okay.
2: That's why you have, you know, us. if
0: any of my patients are listening, just It doesn't fade enough. It doesn't fade that quickly.
2: (laughs) Imposter. So, you know, uveitis is inflammation of the eye just like, you know, arthritis is inflammation of your joints. So I'm like
1: a rheumatologist of the eyes. eyes, so. So you are in private solo practice. That's right. Currently by yourself. That's right. And you are treating both specifically retina diseases and also general
2: eye problems? That's right. So, you know, I'm I'm trained in all of ophthalmology. So, you know, I trained at Jewel Stein Eye Institute and then at UCLA and then USC. So I saw just about everything you can possibly see in an eye, like tuberculosis in an eye, syphilis in an eye, <laughs> like anything that you've ever read about in the back of some textbook. That's I you. I have seen. You've exactly. seen it.
1: Now, so, so, you were also- in, so you
0: were in Charleston? Yes. No. USC. Oh, not California. MUSC. Yep. Not, yep. Oh, I, uh, see, that... I was thinking MUSC because they have a great ophthalmological residency. And well, fellowship not as good program.
2: as UCLA. <laughs> oh, no, no,
0: no, no, no. I'm oh, certainly not. And you no, know, but you know, I'm a I'm a big Charles, Charleston fan. We talk about Charleston all the time. If you've noticed, a lot of the <laughs> doctors we bring on this show. Have trained in Charleston, Dr. McManus last week. Gee,
1: and who Charleston. picked him?
0: Yeah, I did. <laughs>
1: <laughs> all right. So you're you're an eye you're an ophthalmologist and an eye surgeon. And so what does that mean? What kind of procedures do you do? That's right. So I actually, like I said, I've trained
2: in all eye surgery, but um, you know, What I really specialize in is retinal laser surgery. So like I mentioned, those holes, tears, swelling, diabetic retinopathy, strokes in the eyes, those can all be fixed with retinal laser surgery. Um, One of the other surgeries I do, one of my favorite surgeries is cataract surgery. That's a really hot topic. Uh, You know... Some people might not know. People get very emotional when you tell them they have cataracts,
0: but they've been treating cataracts it's kind for of a centuries. You're,
1: you're old, right?
2: There,
0: there's that's an old, how my there, patients There's say a it. very old book, and it's one of the best novels I've ever read. It's called The Physician. It was written by Noah Gordon, and it details a physician in the Middle Ages because they couldn't train people in England in the Middle Ages. And I'm going to come back with this story after our commercial break. We're back. So, we we're talking about The Physician by Noah Gordon, and this novel tracks a new physician who trained in Persia because that's where all doctors got their training. Because it was heresy to be a doctor in England back then. You could be other things, but n- not really a physician because it went against God's will. If you were sick, it was God's will, and how dare you interfere with that? So, we've come a long way, 180 degrees from that, but they talked about, and this book was fairly well researched, gouging cataracts in the 13 and 1400s. So were they doing some type of cataract surgery that long ago?
2: Well, yeah, it was essentially, you know, with like an ice pick, you know, yes, you can, you can, what they, what, and, and it's actually done in some places in Africa, you know, even today, it's, it's literally putting a pick into the eye and dislodging the cataract and letting it fall to the back of the eye. Now, you know, you're not going to get good vision that way. (laughs) I I wouldn't recommend it.
1: You need that lens? No?
2: You kind of need that lens. Um, But even, I mean, 100 years ago, cataract surgery is not what it is today. Uh, I mean, a hundred years ago, like when Monet had his cataract surgery, I mean, who knows that Monet got cataracts, right? Everybody knows that he got really bad cataracts and he basically went blind and all he could see was these like brown lily pads. And there's beautiful paintings that are just brown lily pads. And he waited until like, I mean, he was like hand motion vision, like he wasn't seeing anything. So he finally had surgery um, which at that time was like a three-step, like like you know he had to come back three times. It was probably like no, anest- it was horrible, and um, you know he he didn't do so well afterwards because of you know, <laughs> but his lily pads became much brighter and prettier.
1: So your so you, the brightness with which you perceive things improves with cataracts.
2: That's right. The cataract is Clataract literally surgery. it's it's um so the lens in the eye. Which, when we're born, it's like a nice little gummy bear. It's a clear gummy bear, and it can move and it can change shape. Well, um, as we get older, it turns into a slightly less, uh, you know, clear gummy bear, and then it loses its uh, flexibility, so it's not a gummy bear anymore. And by the time we're fifty, most people have a little cataract, and it's okay, and you know, you don't have to get upset about it.
0: So, which physician do you think had a better outcome, Monet's? eye doctor, or Van Gogh's ear, nose, and throat doctor? <laughs>
1: That's an excellent question. <laughs> it's also a punny joke, and we need to have a yeah, minimum of 10 of those we, per have to have a, we have to have a few
0: of those. Yep. So are people more prone to cataracts?
1: <laughs> Thank, thanks, Frank. Uh,
0: there it is. Thank you, Frank. <laughs> are people more prone to get cataracts in Florida because of sun exposure and wind exposure?
2: it's really a, a lifetime of sun exposure and a lifetime of oxidative stress i'm sure you guys have heard that term before you know just damage basically so everybody gets cataracts but what people don't really know is that there's a few different types of cataracts and you can get a cataract at 40 from diabetes or from from trauma if somebody punches you really hard in the eye 10 years later you can actually get a cataract i i you know i end up asking people hey have you ever Oh, yeah, yeah, I got into a fight at a bar. One, Yep, that's, that's your cataract. <laughs> so
0: describe for our listeners what a cataract is.
2: So it's that lens getting blurry. So that basically, I mean, not blurry, hazy, right? So your vision ends up getting blurry. So basically, you're going to be driving at night and seeing glare, or you're going to try to read, and you're going to say, oh, my gosh, what happened to my lights? They're getting so dim. I can't see these letters anymore.
0: My patients describe the difference between... Their vision before cataract surgery and after cataract surgery. And the analogy is the old black and white TV versus a new 4D HD TV or 4 HD TV, the, the brand new HD TV yeah. that the colors are more vivid. Uh, there's increased clarity. They wonder why they waited so long. How much pain is a patient in after cataract surgery?
2: No pain. People say, I expected pain, but there was no pain. I mean, literally, the incisions we use are very, very small. And people have almost no pain afterwards. The recovery is easy. You know, I tell people to take it easy a little bit after the surgery, but I mean,
1: really, you can go back to doing whatever it was you were doing the day before. So cataracts are a big topic. Another hot topic for patients would be macular degeneration. So can you explain that a little bit? Well, that's what I treat, you know, mostly. So there's dry macular
2: and there's wet macular and everybody wants to know the difference between the two, but first you you need to know what macular degeneration is. The macula is a central part of your retina, the part that's responsible for you being able to actually read. And um, in macular degeneration, some people get buildup of waste products and for some reason, some people advance to to much worse. Advanced dry macular degeneration, and when you get that, those little those photoreceptors, the the little cells that are responsible for you being actu- able to actually read, um, they start to fail, and that's called advanced dry. Now, you know, there's not good treatments for advanced dry macular, but this is where we can get our patients involved in their own health. How many times a day do you see say Mediterranean diet?
1: Once, twice? Yeah, yeah. I call it different things just because everyone's sick of hearing Mediterranean diet.
2: (laughs) Yeah, well, it turns out it's not just good for your heart. A study came out just a few months ago showing that it decreases the rate of progression to advanced macular degeneration by 40%. Wow. That's huge, 40%. So, um, you know, it's not right for people to say there's nothing you can do because there are things you can do. If you have a grandmother with macular degeneration or your mother has macular degeneration or you have early macular degeneration clean up your diet stop smoking
1: it's amazing <laughs> what that will do
0: so skip the burgers add the veggies and the couscous
1: basically the i think it's the olive oil that does
0: it yeah i do too i mean olive Thumbs oil is up gr- from frank Ol- olive oil is great <laughs> for the heart it, it, it really is
2: and Oh and you want to hear about what?
0: Yeah, I want I want to know the difference. Yeah.
2: yeah. So well here's what happens. So people have dry macular and then all of a sudden the body wants to fix things. And the body starts gr- growing these abnormal blood vessels. And these abnormal blood vessels are horrible for the for the eye because they grow right in the middle of your vision and they basically cause a big scar where you're supposed to have nice healthy cells. But this is where we can actually do something so in about 2004 uh we finally developed a medication that can treat this it's literally a a miracle drug they're called anti vegf and uh, these injections can save a person's vision they're um you know i've kept my patients with wet macular 2020 for years and years and years and just 10-15 years ago this used to be a horrible devastating diagnosis Amazing. Mm -hmm.
1: But it's a shot, right? It's a shot that if done
2: correctly, really does not hurt. So,
1: (laughs) (laughs) Plug for Julia. Uh, What about glaucoma? Glaucoma is another common eye malady that uh, I think everyone's familiar with the name, but may not be exactly sure what that is. Well, here's the thing about glaucoma. It's a
2: completely silent condition. And so nobody knows when they have it until they've been told they have it. Glaucoma is basically damage to the optic nerve. And you can get damage to the optic nerve many different ways. And glaucoma sort of encompasses all of those different ways. Um, The problem is that patients lose vision at the periphery first. So no one's going to notice that they lost a little bit of peripheral vision. The problem is when they get to the center and they lose that central vision, there's no way to get it back because it's literally nerve damage. We can't regenerate nerves. Um, so when my patients come in, I do a battery of tests and I and I um examine them and I I I use the analogy of a jigsaw puzzle. And when I put together the pieces of that jigsaw puzzle, that's how I can figure out if I need to start treating them.
1: So not all patients have an ophthalmologist, okay? Um, some people are seen by an optometrist. Can you explain what the difference is? Yeah, so my optometry colleagues.
2: Um, they went to optometry school. They're eye doctors. They're experts in in refraction and glasses fitting and contact lenses, and they spend a lot of time looking at eyes. So they can usually see when there's a problem and when they need to refer a patient for a diagnosis or treatment to me. An ophthalmologist obviously has completed medical school and residency, but I think what, what sets us apart is that we're trained in diseases of the whole body. So we're able to see how you know uh, thyroid problems can affect your eyes, or how you know uh, other endocrine problems, or how vascular problems, or any of those things. How can they how they can affect the eyes? So that's how you know you were asking me how I diagnose all those things.
0: Yeah, I want to go back to glaucoma for just a little bit because there's more, there's more than one type, and and you said it's anything that really affects the optic nerve. But most of our listeners are familiar with open angle glaucoma and closed angle glaucoma. Explain the difference.
2: Well, closed angle glaucoma is, it's, it's basically plumbing. So there's a trabecular meshwork. That's the drain inside the eye. This is different than the tear drain. This is all the, all day I spent explaining the difference. Trabecular meshwork is inside the eye. So if you block off the trabecular meshwork, you get angle closure glaucoma, but that is not a silent condition because what happens classically is, you know, a middle-aged person walks out of a movie theater and suddenly gets horrible eye pain, vomiting, but it's sort of too late when that happens. Yes, we can treat it. First, they'll come to the ER and the ER physician will not know what to do because they won't know exactly what it is, but the thing is that we can um we can identify those patients that are at risk for that kind of condition mm-hmm. and we could treat it with a really simple laser before it can, before it happens. I see. And so you're what how do you know someone is at risk? What what are the so we do uh, we do an exam looking at the actual drain, mm-hmm. and if we can see that the drain is very narrow, mm-hmm. we can then make a bypass route with with a little laser. So that's angle closure glaucoma. But there's so many types of glaucoma. Like if you have really bad diabetes or a stroke in the eye, blood vessels can grow over the drain. So that's like you know like roots growing through your pipes or something. And so that's also another type of glaucoma. And all of those things will make the pressure in the eye go high. So now when you check
0: for pressure in the eye and you give that little puff of air.
2: We don't do the puff of air how anymore. How do you do it? How do you do it? Well, there's a few different ways, but I actually have the most exciting. Now that I started a new practice, I've got a, the newest, <laughs> most exciting technology. And we have this really, really cool. Um, it's called a rebound tonometer. It's a tiny pin that's so tiny and so light that you actually don't feel when it touches the eye. You don't need anesthesia to check the eye pressure now. It's amazing. It's changed my life.
0: And at what age should patients start being checked for glaucoma?
2: Honestly, people I've seen I've seen 40-year-olds with advanced glaucoma because you can get glaucoma at any age. Yes, it's more common to get it after 60. You should really be ch- if you're if you're forty years old, you should be getting an annual eye exam.
1: And does that eye exam need to be by an ophthalmologist?
2: You know, I think I think there's a wide variety of um, of expertise out there. Um, I know the optometrists I work with, I trust very much, and mm-hmm. I know there's many optometrists that will follow patients until they get to a point where they feel like you know they need to send it to an ophthalmologist. You know, that said, I also follow normal patients. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, I've examined your eyes, Leanne. You actually have. Um, And, you know, and I can can spot a normal eye
1: exam as well. So I went to see Julia for an ocular migraine problem, which is basically where you're examining a patient, having a normal everyday experience, and then half of your vision completely goes away. And in the middle of your exam, you think, I'm having a stroke. Excuse me.
0: I I had a patient call (laughs) me last night with an ocular migraine. How did I know it was an ocular migraine? He has a history of ocular migraines. Oh,
1: I Uh, love it when that happens. Yeah,
0: I love it when that happens. (laughs) I ended up in the ER with one of those. But they were telling me, and and this part I wasn't aware of. Okay, here's that imposter syndrome coming back. That there is a relationship between ocular migraines and colon diseases. I wasn't aware of that. Were you aware of that?
2: That's interesting, but... I've always felt like, and I am not a GI specialist. I'll just put that out there. But
0: I'm going I'm to look that up before the next show. Mm-hmm.
2: Oh, I was just, I mean, I've always felt like there's a link between like GI diseases and like everything that happens in your body and like <laughs> headaches just happen from GI diseases. So, you know, I don't, but that's, that's not my, I, I thought it was interesting. <laughs> so I want to
0: shift gears just a little bit. Sure. I have a lot of patients that have had LASIK procedures Course, a lot of patients call it the LASIKS procedure. LASIKS guys is a diuretic. It's a water (laughs) pill. It's not a LASIKS procedure. It's LASIK and that's an acronym for, or is it a brand name?
2: It might be both, actually, but it's like laser assisted, like something or other.
0: Keratotomy. Something laser assisted. Well, it's
2: basically people don't really know what it is. People think they had LASIK when they had cataract surgery, people (laughs) think they had LASIK. When they had a procedure for glaucoma, people think that all lasers that go towards their eyes are LASIK. The thing is, LASIK is when the cornea, the front part of the eye, is reshaped in a different shape. And so how often do you hear, I, I want to get LASIK from your elderly patients?
0: I hear it a lot.
2: I mean, every party, right? Mm-hmm. Every I think <laughs> at your last party,
1: Leanne, that you came to, people are I talking. Sorry, to. I'm sorry that happens at my party. Yeah, yeah, do you know, do you,
0: do you answer a lot of medical questions at parties?
1: I think my family is disgusted with my lack of sympathy towards there, there's, family There's a way. There's the a way around.
0: Thing. There's a way around that. Well, you know, I can't do anything with your clothes on. So if you don't mind the rest of the people being here, we'll just clear all the food off, just undress, hop up on the table. They'll stop asking. You don't know my party. I don't know your party. That is a
2: dangerous, dangerous request. No,
1: my my strategy is just to invite my colleague physicians and let them bear the brunt of family asking questions. But you have done surgery on, like, what? Now, like three members of my family? I have. <laughs> Dr. Talton's family. Is I keep me in business. My family with her eye with their eyes. So, so, but you haven't just done uh intraocular surgery on my family members. You haven't just replaced, you know, fixed cataracts. You've also done oculoplastic surgery. Uh, that's on right. My that's right. I
2: also do um, you know, eyelid lifts. You ah. know, I can't tell you how many people tell don't tell me. Oh my goodness! I didn't realize what I was missing after yeah, the I will say
1: left. that that is, you know, so- sorry if you're a future patient and I do kind this of like video.
0: opens the blinds for well, you. Yeah, my
1: favorite thing in the world is to see a patient and say, you know, I think you'd be a candidate for getting an eyelid lift and they go they have a wonderful experience they look 20 years younger they can see better they feel more awake and they look better and, and i th- look great
0: prior to that they are a horse in central park they have those little <laughs> blinders on they can only see right in front of them yes, you know I- my
2: favorite outcome someone told me they lost 10 pounds after their surgery and i said there's, I did not take 10 pounds off. I'm sorry. And they said, well, no, it was because I have so much energy now. I can exercise. I don't feel like I'm falling asleep all the time because my eyes are closing.
0: That's amazing.
2: Yeah. It's really, yeah that's pretty it's cool.
0: Really... So I want to get back to LASIK for just a yes. second because I have a lot of questions about it. I read an article that said that LASIK was no longer recommended. And the inventor of LASIK surgery said he wished he had never invented it. And I know people have difficulty with night vision afterwards and and they have to wear reading glasses afterwards because it's hard to see both near and far. Nearsighted you can see near, far sighted you can see far, it is what it is, it is what it says. Do you do LASIK? Do you recommend it? And if you don't recommend it, why not?
2: I have done LASIK. So uh, let me tell you a little bit about it. And yeah, that guy is Morris Waxler by the way. That's the it's a PhD who came out and said, you know, I I regret having participated in the approval of this procedure. Here's the thing. He said he said we need to be more transparent about our about our our complications. But I'm a surgeon and you guys you guys are physicians, you know, everything we do ha- can have complications, no matter how routine the surgery is. Are there complications with LASIK? Of course there are. Um, as physicians, we need to be transparent about those complications. Now, I don't do LASIK anymore, I did in my training. Um, I have not gotten LASIK myself, but many of my ophthalmology colleagues have. Here's the thing to remember though, LASIK is for people in their 20s and 30s, maybe their early 40s. After that, and you're just making your cataract surgery harder. Because let me tell you, calculations to figure out what implant to use for cataract surgery are made unreliable by having a history of LASIK. So, you know, I I think the thing to remember, especially for doctors and even for family members that are asking about LASIK, is that You don't want LASIK. What you're asking about is cataract surgery. And you don't have to have a bad cataract to need to go for cataract surgery. I've seen people and I've operated on people who have relatively minor cataracts, but these are people who have high needs. You know, they're active people. They want to play golf and they want to go outside and they want to, you know, they want to do things and they want to see near and far. And the thing is that that's what that's what all of our exciting new research is. And have you guys heard about the the new lenses that let you see it far and
1: near? I have only heard patients come back from their consultation and say, "What do I do?" And I'm like, "I'm the wrong person for you to ask."
2: That's the thing. I mean, no one can really tell you exactly what to do. But there, I mean, it's fantastic. All the research in ophthalmology is being directed towards this just because people cannot wear glasses. This is all of our medical. The, the, all- Don't
0: tell that to Dr. Leanne. She has like 30
2: pair. It's
1: 15. 15. It's fifteen pairs.
2: Me and Leanne have matching glasses. I'll have you know. I personally, I have choose no... glasses for her. I, s- I will send her glasses and say these are. For I you. have <laughs> no problem with glasses, and you know, as a retina specialist, you know, I can, I can understand that people want to be glasses free, and they ask me why I wear glasses. I'm like, yeah, I like glasses, you know, but um, for some people, it's really important. It changes their lifestyle, and you know what? I'll tell you something. When I am out on my ice skates trying to learn <laughs> how to spin, and my glasses fly off across the ice, I can you know I can understand why patients are trying to get rid of their glasses. So
0: well, I, I wear, wear contact know. lenses most of the time. Today I have my glasses on because I thought it would be a a good thing to do for the show because right. you're here and I wanted you to know that <laughs> I, I do get eye care, <laughs> but my question to you is contact lenses and and i wear the multifocal and that way i don't have to wear reading glasses there's so many different types of contact lenses now between the daily wear the extended wear how dangerous is it to wear extended wear contact lenses and can you get corneal scarring or corneal abrasions that way? That is a fantastic our listeners always question. want to know about you know,
2: that. Yeah. That is such a fantastic question. I don't care what it says on the box. I don't know who they paid to write that stuff on the container. It is never safe to sleep in context.
0: It's not one of our writers for this show.
2: No, no, no. <laughs> it is never safe to sleep in context. I've seen literally flesh-eating amoebas in people's corneas. You cannot bounce back from that. The only thing you can do is get a corneal transplant once. I've seen it perforate through someone's eye, and they've had to get emergency corneal transplant surgery. I am never sleeping in contacts. I urge everybody. And and by the way, while we're on the subject, I've had a few people tell me they they remove their contact and spit on it because that's a great idea. That that's It's very sterile that way. Right,
0: because spit has no germs. Right?
2: It's not. It's very clean. It's from your own mouth. And then they place the contact back in their eye. Please, this is a PSA, public service announcement, do not do that. If your eyes are dry, just wait till you get an artificial tear.
1: So let me just recap the show for today. We opened up by talking a little bit about imposter syndrome. We had a No, sp- we
0: opened up by talking about great restaurants. Oh,
1: great restaurants. Yeah, that's yeah, right. That,
0: that was so fun.
1: Yeah. And then imposter syndrome, um, which some of us have many of us, most of us have experienced before. And we had the added benefit of having a new person on the show who could weigh in on imposter syndrome and also being a female physician and also. Female physician issues and uniting together, and, and a
0: physician moms group, which I hadn't heard of prior to the show,
1: and now you want to join, don't you?
0: Well, I can't. <laughs> You're not going to let me join, are you?
1: No, no way. But we might, we may, we may open and, it up and, to special and guests. You don't pump either. Yeah, you don't pump. You're out. You're out. That's right. <laughs> and then we we thank you for that. Spent a good amount of time talking with Doctor Julia Nemirov about diseases of the eye, talking about her. Amazing new practice, Retina and Eye Clinic of Palm Beach Gardens. And for all of those who are listening, if you would like to see Dr. Julia in her practice, what do we do? Do we call?
2: You can call 561-331-1797. I actually you remembered web- my number. Do you have a website? Do you have a website? That's right.
0: This has been a fun show. It
2: has. Thank I, you so much for having me. Will you come back? Anytime.
0: It's been great.
2: And thank you for listening
0: to our show. Remember, don't call into the show next Thursday when it's broadcast. We're not live.
2: You call my clinic instead with all your questions.
0: (laughs) And if you don't catch the show next Thursday, catch us on iTunes or catch us on our podcast through podbean.com. We've got it up on our individual Facebook pages. Thanks again for listening to Paradox.